Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to thelouperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. You'll get to listen to my podcasts and watch my sketch comedy videos before I release them to the rest of the world. And you'll also have access to exclusive content for members only. And if you're looking for another way you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Just head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code LOU for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde CBD. Head over to palomaverdecbd.com and use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75. All right, here we go. I am joined tonight by Mark Crispin Miller, a professor from NYU. And uh, this is a, is a treat for me because I was telling Mark earlier, this is the first time I'm broadcasting from my new home in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey. So I become an adult. But the fact that Mark is a professor at my alma mater kind of brings me back in time to my NYU years. So Mark, thank you for, thank you for making this happen. Well, thank you for making it happen. Uh, let me ask, when were you at NYU? I was class of 04. So I was there from 2000 to 2004. Did, did, were you there at the time? Was there any overlap? Yeah, we didn't cross paths. I got here in 97. Oh, okay. I, uh, I started out in the um, College of Arts and Science, and then I transferred to Gallatin. So I became a Gallatin person. So. Wow. Well, uh, some of my best students have been Gallatin students. On the other hand, the, the student who started this whole ordeal that we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. <laughs> also a Gallatin student. Oh, man. So, uh, you, know, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, be, before we, we get into that, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you became a professor, how you became a teacher. What, what, what brought you down, down that path in life? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, I never really wanted to be a professor when I was a kid. Um, you know, I was interested in music, film, uh, theater, stuff like that. And uh, after I graduated, I mean, I, I just went to grad school in English. It was a kind of a, an inertia. I was very good at, at English, you know, close readings of literary texts and stuff like that. And uh, I got a good deal at Johns Hopkins, you know, full tuition and a stipend and all that. So I figured I would do that. But I always thought that I would um, take my degree and go do something else. But you know how things are, you, you get into the groove and I did, but this is significant. It's part of the answer to your question. I never really felt um, entirely at home in the academy. And indeed, even as I was still in graduate school, um, I would write articles for magazines with you know, a wide readership. You know, I wrote for The Nation, I wrote for The New Republic, I wrote for The New York Review of Books, uh, I, I have a total of one academic publication on my whole bibliography. It was a piece of Milton studies, which is a hardcover that, you know, would come out once a year. I, I suppose it still exists. But um, I was, you know, increasingly interested in film, although my dissertation was on Shakespeare. And uh, I taught some film courses as, as a grad student at, um, sorry, uh, Hopkins. 
and I ran the film series on campus and started writing articles about film and, and realized that you could, you could get a tremendous amount out of a movie, a great movie, by reading it very closely, by reading the images in a way very much like the way I, I had learned to read poems and plays, you know? Mm-hmm. So from there, I started to notice that, that TV commercials in their own way were also extremely subtle although not deep, you know, they, they, they only make a very simple point, which is buy this or this will make you powerful. But it did, it, they, they did that in, in ways that, that were really remarkable when you started to dig deep into the images. So to make a long story short, by the end of the seventies, I was writing more and more about the media. And um, uh, I was at a crossroads in the early eighties when I was offered a job at Berkeley in the English department. And I had always wanted to teach there. You know, I love Berkeley, it's just a beautiful place. But they made very clear to me that um, while they liked the stuff I was writing for magazines on, on film and media, I couldn't get tenure just doing that. You know, I'd have to, uh, you know, knuckle down and, and turn out academic articles on, on uh, literature, which, you know, I, I didn't hate that idea. I just wasn't really interested in doing that then. So at the, at the same time, uh, back at Johns Hopkins, where I, I got my English PhD, the head of the uh, creative writing department offered me a job and, and he said, we'll just call it nonfiction and you can teach whatever you want. So I, I came back to Hopkins and taught writing, uh, you know, with a focus on, on media and uh, from there just became, you know, more and more renowned as a media critic. Uh, I suppose I should then tell you what happened to me in 2005, because it relates to my story about NYU. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, well, I, 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 by then, you know, I'd written four or five op-eds for the New York Times. I was often on NPR. So even though I, I was regarded as having kind of an edge, you know, to my media criticism, um, I was I was an acceptable figure, you know. I was acceptable in polite society. So uh, I wrote a book about Bush in 2001. It came out. It's called the Bush Dyslexicon, and it was a really careful reading of his his speech, because you know there was a book called Bushisms that just made fun of his grammatical mistakes, but I noticed a pattern in his mistakes that he only made these ridiculous mistakes when he was trying to profess a feeling that he didn't really feel, when he was trying more specifically to sound an idealistic note, talking about peace or education or economic justice. When he tried to do that, he would say hilariously screwed up things. Like, I, I know how hard it is for you to put food on your family. You know, he'd say things like that. But when he talked about war, when he talked about politics, when he talked about baseball, he was perfectly lucid, perfectly articulate. So it wasn't just that he was this dumbbell, you know, it was that he, he just couldn't really lie well enough, well enough, to, you know, to, to make it stick. So I wrote a whole book about that. And uh, it was doing quite well until 9-11. And then suddenly he was exalted from, you know, being Bozo the Clown to being Winston Churchill. You, you may remember this. Yeah. And, and you couldn't criticize him anymore. So... Um, I then wrote another book about that administration, but in 2005, I came out with my book Fooled Again, which is a close investigation of the theft 
of the 2004 election, okay? You know, through electronic means and, and other tricks used, uh, same tricks that were played in this last election, as a matter of fact. Uh, the book came out, big publisher in New York. We all expected it would make a splash. I was really excited because I thought this book is gonna start a national conversation on the urgent need for a decent voting system in this country, because we actually have the worst voting system in the developed world. You know, it's, it's a disgrace. It's so bad that we can never be confident that the result of an election has anything to do with the will of the electorate. I mean, that's how bad it is. But instead of making that kind of really beneficial splash, what happened was very strange. The corporate media blacked it out pretty much completely. The Times, the Washington Post, all of them. NPR would not have me on to talk about it. I got a total of two newspaper reviews in the whole country. One of them was a hit piece. But the strangest part about it, and, and the thing that got me thinking in a whole new way, was that while the corporate media blacked my book out, the left press attacked it as conspiracy theory. And they called me a conspiracy theorist. And these are magazines, Lou, that, that I'd written for, you know, some of the people attacking me were sort of friends of mine. It was the damnedest thing. And, you know, when I got over the shock, I mean, I went on a book tour and I got a lot of local press wherever I went because people are very interested in this, but the media, no. And the left press, no, double no, right? So this was kind of a, an eye-opening experience in a profound way because I, I asked myself, where did that come from? You know, when did that become a thing, conspiracy theory? When did people start saying, as you may have said, I've said, everybody has said at one time or another, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the people say that, then they'll come out with something perfectly reasonable. I've, you know, I've said that I've said that multiple times on this podcast. I'm saying like, <laughs> I've said, look, I don't go into conspiracy conspiracy theories, but but, I mean, exactly, exactly like you said. And and also, you know, the reality is that conspiracies do happen. You know, course. people do that. There are, you know, for the most part, you know, we, we of course, we have lone wolves. But when big stuff happens, chances are there were more than one or two guys in, in, involved in it. Um, yeah. And, and, well, you're in for a treat, Luke. I'm going to tell you why it is you and everybody else says this now. Okay? Yeah, hit, hit me with it. <laughs> well, you know, I was really mystified because I couldn't believe this has always been the case, right? So what I did was, was very simple. I went to the New York Times Archive and the Washington Post and Time Magazine. And I did a search on the two phrases, conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. And I discovered the conspiracy theory had been used occasionally until 1967. Conspiracy theorist was never used, okay? Conspiracy theory would come up now and then in no consistent way and, and only occasionally. But in 67, you start seeing it more and more. And as the years go by, you're really seeing it a lot. And after 9-11, it's countless, right? Mm -hmm. And by now it's, it's in everybody's head. So, you know, what was the reason for this? Well, it turns out that in early 1967, uh, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, interest in the Kennedy assassination. This is four years later. 
And uh, it was primarily because one book in particular was a bestseller. It's called Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane. But there were other books too that were getting traction, that were questioning the Warren Report. You mentioned Lone Wolves. The Warren Report is a joke. You know, the whole scenario that it lays out is completely ridiculous. And, and all the documents, you know, that are appended to the Warren Report um, basically disprove the story. I mean, it was just that they didn't even read the evidence. They just wanted to get that story out there that Lee Harvey Oswald did it all by himself. There was no conspiracy. So people like Mark Lane start to question that and um, the CIA regarded this as a problem. So they sent out a memo. The number is 1035-960, that memo in I think the spring of 1967. And it went to all their station chiefs worldwide. It's been declassified, you can find it online. And it basically says, this is our problem. You know, uh, people are questioning the Warren report. Uh, so this is what we're gonna do. You're gonna have your media assets um, write pieces that discredit the work of these conspiracy theorists uh, in, in you know, making one or more of these five arguments. And they list them. You know, one is that um, conspiracy theory is connected to the communists, to the Kremlin. Another is uh, the people doing this are just greedy, trying to make money. And another one that's really stuck because we still hear it to this day. Well, if there were a conspiracy of this magnitude, somebody would have talked by now and it would have been reported. Okay, we still hear this today. So that went out and I would say that that drive was among the most successful propaganda drives in history because it has really changed the way Americans think of power, you know. Now, let me tell your audience, at the same time I discovered this, a friend of mine whom I knew from the fight over election reform had made the discovery independently, a guy named Lance DeHaven Smith who taught at Florida Atlantic University. He wrote an essay on this, which I, I read, and I, I was editing a series of books for the University of Texas Press. And I contacted him and I asked him to write a book on this, on the history of how that phrase came to be. And he wrote a fabulous book that everybody should read. It's called Conspiracy Theory in America, okay? And it tells this whole story of how and why the CIA did what it did and more importantly, what it's done to the way we Americans think about uh, power, the way we think about elites. He makes the very important point that Americans were never shy about expressing their suspicions of elite intentions. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is a conspiracy theory from beginning to end. That's what it is. Lists all these things the king did. He didn't do all of them. But um, it is conspiracy theory. Today it would be dismissed as conspiracy theory, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and he goes through, you know, quickly goes through American history, the Jacksonian era, the 19th century, the early 20th century. There just wasn't this embarrassment we feel when we suspect the elites of being up to no good. But as you note, conspiracy, a conspiracy is just an agreement. Conspiracies are commonplace. Big business is, is, a, is just a big conspiracy. We don't have any trouble imagining that the mafia conspires, that organized crime conspires. 
but secret government agencies also conspire, okay? Elite interests, the more powerful and, and the more wealthy they become, the more conspiratorial they become because their interests more and more clash with the interests of the people generally. So- Yeah, can, yeah Mark, can I, just, can, I, oh, can I just stop you there just for a sec? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, what you've what you've been saying the whole time you've been saying it, and I've been I've I've been listening I've been taking it in, and no doubt I have been trained because in my mind part of my mind is saying like oh Mark is sounding like a conspiracy theorist, like that, that's what part in, in my like you're ex, you're explaining this you're you're um, you're laying it out and then in my head I'm like oh JFK here we go again just you know here we go got to read this book you got to you got to read uh, read that book. Um, and it, it's interesting because you are, uh, I mean, in a sense, you're, you're saying, yeah, Lou, you've kind of been trained, you know, to, uh, to think this way. Well, we all have been. I mean, I, I'm not pretending I've been immune to this, you know. I mean, I mean, look, I study propaganda. That's kind of my field, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm digging into stuff in a way most people don't have time to do, and they mm -hmm. don't, and they're not encouraged to do it. Now, it, you know, if, if in the schools we were taught American history more honestly than we've been taught it. If we knew the history of the CIA, for example, if we knew the kinds of things they've been doing since they were formed in 1947, if we knew about you know certain government or business conspiracies prior to that moment, you know, if it wasn't all whited out in our textbooks and our teachers were honest about it, we wouldn't be as nervous hearing this kind of discussion as we tend to be. And the media makes it much, much worse. You know, the media now is completely unreliable, completely untrustworthy. It's just spouting propaganda all the time to an extent I never thought possible. I mean, I'm really staggered by how, how false uh, the reporting is on a daily basis. And they certainly won't tell you the truth about any of these matters. And they are very quick to ridicule people like me and many others. And, and if you know, you, you notice now, I mean, we're talking about this at a very scary moment for this kind of inquiry. Let me say first that if you can't question official narratives, you're living in a totalitarian society. That is, if you can't question what the government says, if you can't question what the state government says, if you can't question what the experts in the media say, you might as well be living in China, seriously. I mean, it is, it is as American as apple pie to question authority. And if we're not allowed to do that, we're not, we're not a free people. There's no hope of progress and there's no hope of scientific progress, you know? Uh, now, um, what's happening at the moment is that this decades old drive to marginalize and uh, ridicule and tarnish conspiracy theory has evolved to the point where since the last election in particular and the so-called attempted coup on January 6th, we have government agencies explicitly linking what they call conspiracy theory with domestic terrorism. That's extremely dangerous, you know? Now I've written books attacking Bush Cheney. Uh, most of my work on election theft focus on Republican election thefts. I am, completely independent. I believe in certain principles. I believe in free and fair elections. I believe in electoral democracy. I believe in free speech, I believe in freedom of religion, all that, okay? Uh, and I have to say to you, 
that I've never been as uh, scared of the government as I am now, okay? It is now practically uh, an arrestable offense to talk about the evidence that this last election was stolen. As far as I'm concerned, the evidence is overwhelming. And I, I can't really stand Trump. I never trusted him. Uh, I was arguing the last four years with people who thought he was in there trying to do the right thing. I never believed that. Uh, but the fact is, uh, he actually won this time. And I, you know, see exactly the same kind of evidence we studied, you know, 16 years ago. Uh, and a lot of my old allies in the election integrity movement won't even look at that evidence because they hate Trump so much, you know. You know and my, my view is it's not, it's not their call who won the election, you know. It's not up to them, right? It's supposed to be up to us. So, you know, these are topsy-turvy times. These are weird times we're living in, you know, and I guess my, my ordeal in NYU is all part of that when we get to it. Yeah, um, you know, on, on the election, uh, it, it, this is definitely a subject that I haven't um, delved into um, very much. Um, when you talk about, you know, evidence of, you know, election, the election being stolen, like what are, you know, some of the things that, the, the big things that pop, that pop into your head? Well, the first the first thing that happened, and this is very similar to previous stolen elections, was that in, I think it was both, uh, I think it was Ohio and Pennsylvania, and then Michigan and Pennsylvania, late at night, there was this sudden uh, ballot dump, you know, where there were like uh, a few hundred thousand votes that just suddenly came in. And in one of the states, they were all for Biden, okay, which is statistically impossible. And in the other state, they were mostly for Biden. You know, they just appeared out of nowhere. Now, you know, 16 years ago, my, my allies would, and I would have noticed that kind of thing immediately. It happened in 2000, it happened in 2004, it happened in many uh, Senate races and some House races. It's always very suspicious when that happens. Um, that, was the, uh, that was the first sign of it. There are also hundreds, literally hundreds of affidavits from people on the ground, and, and that's legal evidence. A sworn affidavit is legal evidence and some of these people were Democrats, you know, very principled Democrats, like in Detroit, who witnessed with their own eyes, uh, you know, election workers faking ballots. And there are several videos, you can see it yourself, of, you know, these workers with stacks of blank ballots busily filling them out. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so, it's so open. And as an example of one of the really shocking things that anyone interested in election integrity should have jumped on immediately. This is not that long ago, a few months ago. In um, a, a um, county in uh, a Florida, I think it was Florida. Uh, I'm sorry, it was in Georgia. A guy named Jovan Pulitzer, you know, who is, who is, he holds many, many patents. He's an expert in um, you know, uh, detecting fraud, studying documents. He has the technology to actually tell if a ballot has been folded, which is a sign that it's been tampered with, okay? And he testified before a subcommittee in this uh, Fulton County, Georgia, and persuaded them. I mean, his, his, his expertise was so impressive and his, his method of detecting fraud so surefire if the subcommittee voted to have all the ballots in that county subjected to his scrutiny. And what happened? The night after the vote, 
a truck pulled up to the warehouse where the ballots were stored and they were all shredded. Oh, seriously? Really? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not making that up. Uh, I, I continue to follow Pulitzer on Twitter. I mean, he strikes me as another principled person. I mean, he doesn't care what party it is. Um, you know, now, you know, I'm got, I, like you, I really haven't had time to focus on it as I used to do. By about 2009, I was so tired of trying to, you know, break through that brick wall. Uh, you know, every time you tried to bring up the issue, you'd be called a conspiracy theorist. And I said, you know, someday this is going to be it's going to be a disaster because of this. And I, I actually think it's happened now. But I'm going to get back into it, I think, and and try to write an essay on on just an overview of what happened this last time and maybe use it as a new introduction to my book and have the book come out again, because I think Republicans will now be interested in this issue in a way they were not when their side won, you know. Uh, I really don't care whether they're right or left, you know, we need a, a plurality of Americans to demand some very easy fundamental reforms, you know, no more electronic vote counting, that should be illegal. All votes should be, you know, cast on paper ballots, counted in the open, the old fashioned way, like they still do all over the world. There should be no private companies involved in the process. Everybody should be automatically registered on his or her 18th birthday. So just get out of this mayor's nest of state regulations, you know, demanding all these documents. Election day should be a federal holiday. I mean, there's just a bunch of things that we should do to, to, to give some, you know, validity to the elect, election system, because right now it's, 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 it's embarrassing. And, and it means that we don't really live in a democracy, you know? And, and and I and I think this will this will segue nicely into um, your situation at NYU in that you and I are, are having this com this conversation, and for me it's a really normal thing to have a difficult conversation sometimes about subjects that I'm not too sure of, so I do more listening and asking questions than, than anything. Yeah. But at no point in this you know conversation, and I'm like, am I like we got to shut this guy Mark up. I mean, this guy's got to be, he, you know, muzzle this dude right now. And, um, and that's something that, you know, a part, part of it, I, I credit to um, a few really great professors that I had at NYU. And, and I had this great class and I, I think I, I mentioned it in, in the email I wrote to you. I had a class uh, called belief and skepticism. And it was with uh, professor Mark Cohen and the very, I think it was the very first class, the first day, we, he asked us to split up into two groups, the believers and the skeptics. Hmm. And even though I had, I had, I had seen myself as a, as a skeptic, I, I had gone to Catholic school, but I came out an atheist. Um, in that class, I was like, wait a minute, are there things that I actually believe? So I would have to be a believer. So all right, we're going to be on, the, I'm going to be on the believer side. And he wanted us to um, bring up a topic and we were going to debate, you know, the, the two sides. So I raised my hand and the thing that I, the thing that I, that I said, as a believer, I said, rape is wrong. And now the skeptics on the other side of the, of the classroom had to defend rape. Oh my God. You know, I mean, talk about being put in a, in a lousy position, you know, but <laughs> But it was a, a, I guess, a fiery, interesting, 
you know, 45 minutes, uh, 50, I think it was a 50 minute class. Um, and that was something where it was sort of like, man, there's no topic that we can't, that we can't talk about. There's no, there, there's nothing that, especially in an academic setting that we can't, can't talk about. And, um, when, when I was in, when I was in college, um, I was, I was there my sophomore years when, um, I was there during nine 11 and it was something that I looked back on and I realized, you know, for, you know, since then I've had many friends who were quote, you know, quote unquote, nine 11 truthers and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, good people that I, that I know, uh, who, you know, who were a, a part of that, a part of that movement. And I was just thinking, I was like, man, uh, when I look at, look at the body count of these nine 11 truther conspiracy theorists compared to the people who had us invade Iraq, it's, there, there's no comparison whatsoever. So let's demonize the 9-11 truth or conspiracy theorists. They're idiots. They're, you know, they're, they're dumb. Let's just shut them up. Yeah. But then we look at the people that we look to for the truth. You know, we look to for, um, you know, for guidance, you know, as you say, like um, um, George Bush at that time was sort of, you know, elevated to this, you know, almost messianic, um, you know, stature. Yeah. It's like, man, look at all the, the harm that came that came out of that yeah really well you know whenever all the media is united well when they're united on anything it's it's suspicious because that kind of unanimity doesn't happen by accident but when they're united in ridiculing somebody uh calling or or, or some notion they're screaming that it's a hoax it's fake it's been debunked they keep saying that uh that you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Why would they be doing that if there were nothing to it? Why don't they just ignore it, you know? Mm -hmm. When somebody calls you a conspiracy theorist, they have lost the argument. Because as I just explained, it is a slur intended to shut down discussion. See, if they really had an argument, they wouldn't ridicule you and they wouldn't call you names. But most of the so-called fact checks that we read in the media um, you know, there you, you take out the the snideness, the derision, and the name calling, and then just look closely at what it is they're looking at in order to disprove a given claim. And like when it comes to these uh, COVID vaccines, you know, the fact checkers will always basically refer back to the manufacturers of the vaccines as the authority on on you know whether they're safe or not, or maybe the Gates Foundation. But these are interested parties. That is not debunking something, okay? Uh, but you know, the media has become a gigantic machine for discouraging, you know, legitimate inquiry, and for you know, um, st uh, stigmatizing people who raise questions. Whereas you learned in that class, you got to raise questions. You know, I mean, if you don't raise questions, you're just you're just a lemming. You're just uh, you don't deserve the freedoms that we enjoy, really. Because, and, you know, and also, it's I think it's incumbent upon the people to have answers to those questions. You know, to be able to to say like, oh yeah, no, that's been brought up a bunch of times. Uh, this is the reasoning that you know that we have for it. Uh, what you know, what else do you got? There, there has to be a, um, you know, there has to be some communi communication there. Um, well, yeah, and, and uh, so. The, the class that you teach or, or one of the classes that you teach on, on propaganda. Um, so how about, well, 
so I, I, I do comedy and a lot of it is political comedy. And I can't tell you the amount of sketches that I put out there, sketch comedy videos that, you know, take a, you know, take on a, a political subject and the amount of times that I've been called a propagandist or like yeah. you're doing propaganda. The thing is, am I doing it? I'm not sure. Like, so maybe based on what do they mean when they say that? Um, what, what do they mean? I guess, um, let's see if, uh, I guess an example would be, I did a, uh, I made a video a little, little while back called burglars for gun control. Mm -hmm. So it was a, uh, I mean, it was basically the, what the title is a, uh, couple of guys are trying to break into a, into a, a home. There was a single mom with her baby and she, uh, fired upon them and, and shot one of the guys. And the whole conceit is that we play, we play off these um, burglars as if, you know, they, these are guys just, you know, going out, you know, doing their job and they, <laughs> and they, and they came across this crazy madman, you know, with a deranged madman with a gun. Um, and uh, yeah, that one was, it was definitely a big hit with a lot of, you know, second amendment people and, and all that. But, you know, the amount of people were like, Oh, this is just like, you know, your pro gun propaganda and all that. Um, well, you know, yeah. You know what I can say to that? I mean, sure. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it's definitely that. But if if it were the other way around, and you were you were goofing on um, the other side, the people right. attacking you as a propagandist wouldn't have any problem with it. They sure. wouldn't. Think, they wouldn't think it was propaganda, because sure. see, that's the thing about propaganda. This is what I say the first day of class. That um, it's it's hard to study. You know, first of all, I don't I don't treat it as an academic subject, as something remote. Mm -hmm. where we focus only on like the Nazis and the Bolsheviks, maybe World War One. you know, no, it's not an academic subject. It's, it is a crucial subject that everybody's got to, got to study. I think, I think it should be taught in high schools and colleges, part of the curriculum, how propaganda works. And the hard part of it is that precisely this, you know, that we just discussed, that every, anyone is able to point to an example of it that they don't like, right? Mm -hmm. But they can't see it at all for what it is if it pushes their buttons and they agree with it. So while it's, you know, very easy for us to, you know, score points against, say, Fox News if we're liberals or the New York Times if we're conservatives, the hard part is to kind of pull back and try to take a thorough and impartial look at propaganda generally and be prepared to move out of your comfort zone and maybe reconsider some beliefs that you've held often fervently, often for a long time. This makes it hard, you know? Mm -hmm. I tell the students, you know, if you really try to do this, uh, you might get upset, you might get mad, okay? Uh, if I say, if I mention in this class, if I mention evidence of a counter narrative that really pisses you off, you know, you think is outlandish, do me and yourself a favor, just look into it. That's all I ask, look into it. If I'm, if I'm wrong, come to class and tell me because you know an argument in class is really an excellent thing. And if I'm right, then you've learned something, right? Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the class I make abundantly clear is, is you know, while we're gonna study the background, we're gonna look at the Nazis, we're gonna look at all that, you know, the history of modern propaganda, it's very important to understand it our main concern ultimately is being able to perceive it in real time, or at least 
perceive a very recent propaganda. It's gotta be something the students remember um, because it's the propaganda in the air right now that's most destructive, which, which is not to say it's always inaccurate. I mean, pro propaganda drives to get you to wear your seatbelt. That's propaganda too. Uh, it's not false and it's not malevolent, but we're concerned with propaganda that disguises itself as something else and that is driven you know, what is propaganda? All it is really is any organized attempt to get large numbers of people to do something or think something. It's really all it is. So uh, I warn them, you know, not only might you yourself be a little freaked out sometimes, but believe me, once you start to study these things in depth, like we spend a week on the Kennedy assassination, have them read some books that are incredibly uh, compelling and kind of definitive. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna tell your roommates or your friends, or your family, I've studied this, I've learned that. And, and often you're gonna get some pushback. You know, they're gonna say, what are you talking about? It, it makes people angry because, you know, propaganda, it's not a rational thing. It hits us at a very deep level. You know, it's not like persuasion. You know, if I'm trying to persuade you something, or there's a group of us trying to persuade each other. It's an argument we're having with each other. It's a back and forth, it's a give and take. And we're using arguments, we're using our reason. We're trying to use logic, we're trying to use examples. That's very different from the way propaganda works because propaganda does not want an argument. Propaganda does not want to be contradicted. Propaganda wants nothing anywhere near it that throws it into question. So if you're Let's say, let's take commercial propaganda, advertising. You buy, you know, pages in the New York Times. You do not want the Times to be running any articles that cast any kind of a shadow on your product, right? So they run tons of big pharma advertising, as all the media do. You're not going to find any truth in those media about the vaccines or even certain lethal drugs. It took forever to get Vioxx off the market, even though it was killing people all over the place because the media does not make an issue out of things that affect their advertisers. But that's just one example. Even political propaganda, it's the same thing. No argument. This is why propaganda and censorship are two sides of the same coin, you see? If you want your propaganda to triumph, you know, if you want it to fill everybody's heart and mind, right? Uh, it, it's gotta be the only thing people encounter. It's got to be the only thing they can find uh, from the usual array of media outlets that they favor. It's got to be the first thing that they see when they do a Google search. Okay, those algorithms are very propagandistic. Google owns two pharmaceutical companies. Okay, you do a search on some issue having to do with vaccines or you know uh, prescription drugs. The first thing that's going to come up is stuff attacking people raising questions about it. You just can't find the questions themselves, right? So it's hard, it's difficult, it wants to be everywhere. So you gotta figure out how to find the other side of the story. And Lou, that is harder than ever now because cyberspace, social media are being policed on a daily basis. People being deplatformed on a daily basis. You know, YouTube channels taken down after years. Yeah, part, part of me is wondering, you know, when this goes up and, and thankfully I've, I, I haven't had any videos taken down off of off of YouTube. Um, I've had some stuff that isn't, you know, monetized uh, and all that. But yeah, I, I, it, it, I'm like, man, we're, we might be running a risk of this just being pulled just because of some of the things that we're, that we're touching upon. You know? 
well, you might want to end the show right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to end it at the beginning. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. It's but, true. Uh, yeah, yeah, YouTube, which is owned by Google, is um, really relentless. And Facebook is getting worse and worse, and Twitter as well. You know, look, these are supposed to be our commons, okay? This is where we all meet to discuss things. And yeah, they're privately owned. But there is a precedent for demanding that privately owned commonses uh, not interfere, there'd be no interference with free speech there. There's a famous Supreme Court case, uh, Pruneyard versus something, I forget the name of the other party, but it had to do with a shopping mall in California where some kids were handing out leaflets, I forget the issue, they had a table set up and the owners of the mall made them stop. And the kids sued on First Amendment grounds. And under the California state constitution, uh, the students actually prevailed, okay, which is interesting. And then this ended up at the Supreme Court over the question of whether the California Supreme Court or whether any state Supreme Court has the right to do that, has the right to, to say that the owners of private properties that function as a commons must not interfere with free speech in that space. And the Supreme Court found for California, which is to say that those, I think there's maybe 12 states where you cannot interfere with free speech in a shopping mall. Now, you know, I'm wondering to what extent is that applicable to Twitter mm -hmm. or to Facebook, which we use as a commons and where I've been shadow banned, you know, long since. Um, you know, Wikipedia has been, you know, turned into a propaganda weapon. At a certain point last year, my, my uh, biography was just completely rewritten and it became very, very snide. And, uh, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist and all this. So, you know, free speech in this country and in the West generally is, is really at, at serious risk uh, for a number of reasons. And that too relates to my case at NYU. Yeah, let's, let's get into that because um, uh, your classroom is not the commons. Um, it's, you know, your classroom, it's between you and your students and you're, you know, representing a, a university. And uh, yeah, maybe we can talk about what, uh, what got you in trouble. Thanks. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, I've been teaching this propaganda course for about 20 years, and I already told you that I make clear to them how we approach the subject. Uh, I also say, I just want to add um, something I say throughout the semester, you know, when I mention evidence of some outlandish seeming counter narrative, bear this in mind always, do not believe a single word I say. I say this throughout the semester, don't believe me. Don't go and tell your roommate, my professor said this. I'm not an oracle, okay? I'm fallible. All I've done is research and I, I'll tell you what the research tells me, but don't believe me. Check it out yourself. Okay, that's very important. All right, so this last September, I'm teaching the class as usual, except for one big difference, which if you thought about it for 10 seconds, you could figure out we weren't meeting in the same place, okay? We were meeting by Zoom. So I'm making the point that, you know, it's important for us to pay attention to propaganda drives ongoing at the time. And I said, look at how we're meeting, right? Look at how unnatural this is. You hate this, I hate this, why are we doing it? 
Why aren't we in the same place? Well, obviously it's because of the COVID crisis. And the COVID crisis has been driven by a, a kind of a cluster of propaganda themes that we've been hearing all year. And that doesn't mean they're necessarily false, but they are propaganda. They are one-sided. So, you know, we could actually examine any aspect of the COVID crisis, or you could write your papers on an aspect of the COVID crisis. One thing one could do, and this Lou was completely hypothetical. I'd just been working on this, so I was interested in it. We could look at the mask mandates at masking. It may interest you to know that all the randomized controlled trials conducted of masking in hospitals, that's the most rigorous kind of scientific study. I thought there were eight. There were actually 10 at that moment. Now, by now there were 11. But I said all of those eight studies have found over the years that masks are not effective barriers against respiratory virus. That's the scientific consensus. And that's the consensus that Dr. Fauci was um, echoing until April. He was even on 60 Minutes saying masks won't do any good. The CDC as well until early April. The World Health Organization echoed that consensus until June, then they, they flipped. But the fact is, that's the consensus of those studies. I would encourage you to read those. And I would also encourage you to read the more recent studies finding that masks are effective. So you would read all the literature, okay? And come to your own conclusion as to which side makes a more compelling case. Now, you're not scientists, neither am I. So what are a few things that you can do as a layman? What are a few things you can do as a student of propaganda to try to figure out whether what you're reading is sound or not? Well, one thing you can do with a new study very often is read the scientific reviews because often there are comments on a new study and scientists will weigh in with criticisms because real science is based on you know, serious attempts to take a theory down. That's how you test it. You know, mm -hmm. other scientists really go at it tooth and, tooth and claw. You know? The other thing you should do is when you see a study that says masks absolutely work, see what um, university the study comes from. And then check to see if that study, I mean, sorry, if that school has any financial arrangements with Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation, because then there might be confirmation bias, right? There might be a conflict of interest. That was the advice I gave them. So, you know, we talked about other things and then the class ended. And the following week, I get an email from this student, a Gallatin student, who asked to join the class late, which happens all the time. And I said, sure. You know, I said, some of my best students are from Gallatin, so welcome. So she joins the class. And the first day she, she spoke up at one point and um, it might be relevant to tell you what she said, but we'll return to that if you're interested. The second day we were there. Now, let me just add one thing about the first week's class. I had recommended to them as a shortcut to finding seven of the eight studies I was referring to, a certain uh, paper that was put together by a Canadian scientist named Denis Rancourt. It had the title, Masks Don't Work. But regardless of his take on it, it was convenient because it has in it 
the links to, to the seven of the eight studies. So I said, for convenience sake, you can go to his paper. So in the second class that was now attended by this new student, another student started to attack Rancourt and his paper, making points that I recognized. I said, did you happen to read the uh, column about this in psychology today? And he said, yes. I said, did you actually read the studies? And he kind of mumbled, you know, he hadn't, hadn't read them. He read the paper attacking them. And this, you know, was the first thing that came up when he did a Google search on the guy. This is the point I was making before. So I, I, I we had a back and forth about this with this student. I and I used this as a kind of lesson. I said, if you jump to Google and take as authoritative the first thing that comes up, because maybe you don't like what you're reading. I, I you know, and, and indeed he did not like hearing that masks don't work. So he quickly went to Google and he grabbed that thing, right? Because propaganda, you know, that we agree with, uh, we don't really see as propaganda. So he read this really, you know, terrible hit piece. And, um, you know, it's full of uh, misrepresentations and guy's got an ax to grind and it's ad hominem and it's all this stuff. We were talking about it in the class. So this other student who just joined is very silent. This is a Thursday. She didn't say a word. The next thing I know, I think it's like a Monday, the next Monday, and I get a call from my department chair asking me if I had discouraged my students from wearing masks. And I said, no, I certainly didn't. In fact, I had said to them, I am not telling you not to wear masks. This is not about your behavior. There's a rule, follow the rule. This is an intellectual exercise. I made that very clear. I said, but I did recommend that they read these randomized controlled studies among others. And he said something to me like, do you think you know more than the doctors at NYU? Which I didn't even know what to say to that. I mean, I read the studies, I can read English. I don't know what the doctor knows or what you're talking about. At any rate, he was a little miffed at me. And he said, well, I have to report this to the uh, COVID, um, you know, uh, Gestapo, whatever they're called at NYU. I had a feeling you were gonna say Gestapo. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> so I said, go ahead, you know, whatever. And I went, oh, I, sorry, he, I think it was he who told me the student was on Twitter complaining about the class. I think that was the first I heard of it. It was that day. And I went online and sure enough, there's this student, the one who joined the class, demanding that NYU fire me for putting the students at risk. And it wasn't just one. They were like, I don't know, 15, hitting me in one way or another. And, and a lot of screenshots from my website, which is called News from Underground which again, you know, the purpose of that website is to, you know, make available to people important information that they're not hearing from the media. Maybe it comes from the foreign press, maybe it comes from the local media, maybe it's from a citizen journalist. I have a listserv though, that if anyone wants to join it, they can just go to that website and sign, it's markcrispinmiller.com, okay? markcrispinmiller.com. And you can get my emails every day. They all end up on the website. And if you don't want to be bombarded with my emails and your inbox filling up with them, you choose the daily digest option and you get just one a day. And it's got all that day's email. All right, so she went to my website. She takes screenshots of these things and puts them up on Twitter 
as if they're self-evidently false and says, all of his sources are far right and conspiracy websites, okay? None of them are far right. Some of them could be defined as conspiracy, except they're all well-sourced, they're all responsibly edited. In her eyes, they were completely uh, unacceptable, but she's demanding that I be fired, all right? Okay, now, about that. That's never happened to me before. It wasn't pleasant. I mean, I wish she had just raised her objections in class. It would have been good for her and everybody else, but she flipped out instead. All right, that's her First Amendment right. But what I did not accept and what I don't accept is what happened next. And that is that my department chair tweeted his thanks to her and wrote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. He wrote that on, on Twitter? Yes, he wrote that on Twitter. I was as astonished as, well, I was more astonished than you. I've been in that department for 24 years and he's speaking for the department. That's odd because I wasn't included in any of these discussions and nobody asked me anything about this. Here's this young woman who, let me add, made stuff up because there's another tweet of hers. It says that I had been bombarding her with emails, trying to badger her into agreeing with my view of masking and if I if I if she didn't, she would be a dupe of the media. This is this is fantasy. The only emails I ever exchanged with her had to do with her joining the class. That was it. So this is not a reliable witness. But they just assumed she was right. I was guilty as charged, and they um, you know told the chair thank her. Right? I couldn't believe it. So I I called him. I said, what are you doing? tweeting your thanks to the student and assuring her that my firing is going to is a priority for the department and he got kind of flustered and he hedged and he said no i didn't mean that uh, i just wanted her to feel that she'd been heard Ugh. i said well it, does, it doesn't you know you could have just said thank you for your opinion it doesn't read like that i would like you to take that down he got mad at me and he left it up until just like last month well, plenty more, plenty more happened. It gets yeah. much better. Mark, can I, can I just, uh, um, yeah. what you're describing, like so many, there are so many elements of it that just scream, we are in the year 2021. And, and it's actually been for like, I say like the past five years or so, this idea of, I want her to know that she's been heard, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, Mike, just saying that the idea of this person can have a, you know, a very strong disagreement with you. And her right. first move is you have to lose your job. Yeah, right. you know, your, your livelihood has to be destroyed. And then on top of that, you know, like you said, like self-evident, like, oh, this is, you know, look at this, this is wrong, this is wrong. And then because you're, you are a, you know, part of my, my language, a piece of shit, you can be lied about as well. Right. So they can add all, they could put all that in. And it is so frustrating to be living in a culture where that is acceptable, or at least some people in the culture who should know better are accepting that. Well, yeah. Uh, it's Amen. You know, it's insane. You're talking about cancel culture. And that's, that's, that's one, that's one of the um, cudgels that has been used against me. You know, the idea here is I'm basically repeating what you said, you know, they see me, as this overbearing 
you know, older white male, and she's automatically sympathetic because she's a young woman, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, whatever I have to say is suspect. Uh, anyway, let, let let me. I mean, let me just continue with the narrative because sure. just the facts of the story are so amazing. So that happens, you know. My chair puts up a formal public thanks to this student for her demand that NYU fire me. The next day, a couple of my students notified me to tell me that they had received an email from this doctor who, I guess he's the head of the NYU COVID Gestapo. He uh, wrote them an email co-signed by the Dean of the school I teach in, Steinhardt, um, starting out by saying they believe in academic freedom which I've learned when you hear somebody say that, you better hit the deck because they're about to come out with a big butt, right? So this email, which didn't even have me on copy, to the students in my class tells them that I had given them dangerous misinformation, includes a list of links to the CDC's website saying that these are the studies you should believe and ending by warning them to wear their masks on campus as if I had told them not to. And as if I had not also told them to read those same studies. The difference between what I did and what they did is that I never tell my students what to believe. The whole purpose of the class is to encourage them to make up their own minds. And these two bureaucrats stepped into my shoes without even telling me, took over my podium and said, you, you, you believe this, okay? It's like training for compliance, the opposite of what I do. That was the, the second thing that happened. And then the third thing, so all the same week, late, late September, my chair tells me that for the good of the department, I should cancel the propaganda course for this semester. I was scheduled to teach it this semester. I said, what do you mean for the good of the department? And he says, um, well, you know, your film course is very popular. So if you teach two sections of that instead of one and the propaganda course, we'll have these really high numbers and that'll be good for us. And I said, well, um, the only problem I have with that argument is that both classes are the same size. They both take 24 students and they're both always full. So that doesn't sound like a real reason. That sounds like a pretext. But since you're the chair and that's what you want me to do, I have no choice, but I am doing this under protest, okay? Now, those are the three things that happened. It, it stuck in my craw. I couldn't, I couldn't swallow it. So with the help of some friends, I wrote this petition that's up at change.org. All it does, very simple, all it asks for is that NYU respect my academic freedom and set a good example for other schools. But I did it in the name of all professors, all journalists, all doctors, all scientists, all whistleblowers, all activists who've been gagged or punished for their dissidents, certainly over the last year where it's reached kind of crisis point, but really for decades, it's been going on for a very long time. So it was kind of representing my struggle here as a flashpoint in a larger struggle for free speech, okay? I put the petition up, thousands of people start signing it, some very eminent people sign it, okay? And it's, it's very gratifying. Uh, a month later, this is like October 21st, it, it story was about to take an even worse turn. 
I get an email from my dean. I've never met this guy. He's never contacted me or he had never contacted me. And he says, I'm ordering a review of your conduct uh, at the insistence of your colleagues who made this demand in the attached letter. Okay, I read the letter. The letter starts out, okay, it starts out by saying we believe in academic freedom. <laughs> okay, that was the beginning. And they, go on to, they go on to say that though they believe in academic freedom, as the faculty handbook notes, if a colleague's behavior is sufficiently egregious, it can nullify his academic freedom. So the implication was very clear that my conduct was so heinous that I should probably be fired or disciplined in some way. Now, why? Well, first of all, they said, I discouraged my students from wearing masks. It was the first claim, completely false. And secondly, I had intimidated students who were wearing masks, which was a pretty remarkable observation considering the fact that the classes on Zoom and you don't wear a mask on Zoom. Unless okay. you're the president. Yeah, well, he could learn a few things from me, but yeah. um, I don't want him in my class. Anyway, um, yeah. But that was only a takeoff point because now you're going to, this is going to sound familiar to you, some of this language. They accuse me of explicit hate speech. And I, I'm, I'm quoting mm -hmm. explicit hate speech. Uh, mounting attacks on students and others in our community, advocating for an unsafe learning environment, assailing my students with non-evidence-based theories, uh, uh, microaggressions and aggressions. I think I've, I've covered it. It was every sin in the social justice playbook they accused me of with no examples, with no evidence. And I was staggered by this. Now, I didn't know what to do. I asked the provost for advice. She's pretty rational. She said, well, you should meet with the dean. So we had this you know, bizarre meeting on Zoom where I started out by telling him there's nothing to this. It's all lies or delusions. Why are you ordering a review? You didn't even talk to me. I'd never met him before. And he seemed very out of it. You know, He's new to the position. And he said, well, we had to do it because the university's lawyers told us we have to do it, which is very significant. We'll return to that. Uh, and, um, you know, I asked him how long it would take. He said, till the end of the semester, mid-December. I said, what will it entail? He said, well, we'll talk to people. It was just really very vague. And I said, well, if you're going to talk to students, I'm going to have students write in my defense. He said, okay. So uh, well over 50 have written, I mean, the letters are great. They're the only gratifying thing in this whole horrible experience. Uh, and I'll just say to bring you up to date on that, that as far as I know, the review, if any, is still going on because I never heard anything. And nobody I know has ever said they heard from anybody. So I don't even think there is a review. And I'll explain what I think is going on after I tell you what I did next, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's just go back to late October. I went through this letter point by point, and I wrote a rebuttal, very careful. I demonstrated every claim they made was false. And I asked for a, a retraction and an apology. I sent it to them. I heard nothing back. I waited a week, 10 days. I sent it again. 
I said, please, uh, by November 20th, I'd like you to retract this and apologize. Nothing, crickets. My whole experience here has been silence from above, right? Mm. So I, what was I supposed to do? You know, am I gonna let them get away with this? It was having an effect on my health. It was certainly intended to hurt my reputation. Indeed, it was intended to impoverish me by having me fired and uh, evicted. So I decided I had no choice but to sue them for libel. 25 of my department colleagues signed it out of like 33. Six of those people are junior faculty who, you know, I don't know what's up with them. I'm not suing them. I'm suing the other 19, okay? And uh, they flipped out, you know, and then they got a lawyer and uh, very briefly, they filed a motion to dismiss. The exhibits they submitted are well worth reading. They think these exhibits prove that they were not lying about me. Most of them are their own email exchanges about me over the years. I had no idea. I was the object of this obsessive, malicious attention uh, for at least four years. And that's, that's their evidence that, that I'm this uh, scumbag, you know. All these documents are up on my website, by the way, everything. So they filed this motion to dismiss. We, we responded with a brief and my own affidavit, which I, I would like people to read. And then the other side replied. That's the process. That's as far as it goes. So as of now, as we speak, at any moment, the judge could rule. It's been several months. He could grant their motion to dismiss, in which case we will appeal. He could deny their motion to dismiss, in which case we'll proceed. I uh, am raising money for this uh, because I expect this to be a costly process as we're gonna depose these people. I believe NYU is involved, you know, from behind the scenes. I don't know that, but I think that's what we'll discover. Uh, so there's a GoFundMe page that people can go to, um, just do a search on GoFundMe and libel and my name. The money goes right into an escrow account that my lawyer manages, so I'm not profiting from this. So I'm trying to raise $100,000. I've raised over 80. I, I expect I'll need more than that, but I'm not going to give up. This is outrageous, and it, it, it speaks to your initial point that we're living at a time when this kind of thing is routine. Okay, mm -hmm. and the thing about my case that's remarkable, and there's many things about it that are remarkable, uh, but the thing that's most um, significant, I think, is that I've been hit with three, all three of what are now the most commonplace weapons used to shut people up. So I call it the censorship trifecta, okay? First of all, they accuse me of conspiracy theory, okay? And we talked about that earlier. They say, I sail my students with non-evidence-based theories. That's just another way of saying conspiracy theories. Uh, and that's been around since the 60s. I've been called that since 2005. That's very familiar. On top of that, as we discussed, they also uh, went after me with cancel culture methods, right? Hate speech, accuse me of hate speech. Uh, maintaining an unsafe learning environment, which I think means challenging students' beliefs that's now like a crime. It'll hurt their little feelings, you know. And the third one, which has been especially widespread since last January 2020, 
is uh, uh, misinformation about COVID or vaccines that's doing people harm. So this dangerous misinformation that has lately moved Chelsea Clinton to publicly demand a global crackdown on social media sites to wipe out misinformation about COVID, okay? We're talking about a totalitarian crackdown here that uses all three of those methods, you know? The woke ideology, uh, you know, the kind of BLM, critical race theory, uh, all that stuff is, is, is working very harmoniously with this kind of big pharma connected uh, health police. Uh, so the combination of those forces is, is, is spells really bad news for the first amendment, you know, which you may have heard Prince Harry the other day called bonkers. 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 Yeah. 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 Thanks, Harry. Um, I've been waiting for him to weigh in on our, on our first amendment. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, uh, see, that's a yeah. sign of the times, you know, yeah. I mean, it's the same with uh, Biden saying no amendment is absolute when he was talking about the second amendment. I think he's wrong about the second amendment. And I certainly think he's wrong about the first amendment and he's wrong about the fourth amendment. Yeah. You know, it's very scary language. And this is coming from Democrats, you know, who are supposed to be anti-authoritarian. So and, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, yeah. So one of the questions that, 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 that I, that I've been having is uh, that, that I wanted to ask you about was uh Recently, the CDC said, hey, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Right. And people are losing their shit over it. They're going absolutely nuts. And I was on a I was on a podcast the other day and we were talking about it. And it's like, you know, for, uh, say, a year or so, people have had their, you know, their tribal markings. Yeah. We know which side you're on. You're wearing a mask. If you're outside wearing a mask, we know what side you're on. If you're jogging around, we know what side you're on. If you're on a beach alone, staring at the ocean, and there's no one around you, and you're wearing a mask, we know which side you're on. And now this completely upends it. Yeah. And there are people. Uh, I mean, I've seen people say, "I'm I'm gonna I'm vaccinated, but I'm gonna continue to wear my mask because I don't want anyone to think I'm a conservative." Seriously? Yeah, people have. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has been rigidly politicized from the beginning, you know. Yeah. Uh, in a way that just drives me nuts. I mean, in a way that's killed people. Okay, that's not hyperbole. Hydroxychloroquine used early is a lifesaver. Okay, that's a fact. It's a that's a clinically, and and a scientifically proven fact. So all it took for everybody on one side of the divide. And the most educated, by the way, all it took for them not to believe that hydroxychloroquine works was for Trump to tout the drug. So as soon as he touts it, and Dr. Fauci's in the background doing this, right? Every dim bulb liberal out there thinks, well, yeah, this is ridiculous. It's obviously poisonous. People shouldn't take it. And then everybody on the right believes it. And that's good that they believed it, but they shouldn't just believe it because Trump said it, you know, it just works. So, you know, the reason why Trump functioned so well to help polarize people over the issue is that it, it helped promote the notion that that early remedy for COVID was illegitimate. And the same applies to ivermectin, which is even better than hydroxychloroquine, okay? The point is, Lou, there are remedies that save people's lives. They don't have to go to the hospital. 
Why did they have to be blacked out? Why all those big lies about those drugs? Because they interfered with the rolla of the vaccine program. There's no need for these vaccines. If people can just get access to those drugs, this is elementary. And it's giving a big problem to the lockdown enthusiasts and big pharma soldiers that India's death rate has been plummeting since they started using ivermectin over there, okay? So they were all set to turn you know, India into the latest scare story you know, with all this hyped up imagery of people dying in the aisles of hospitals, sometimes recycling footage from previous years, you know, other situations. They legalized ivermectin over there. People are taking it and, and it works like a charm. They're doing quite well. So, you know, don't even get me started. This, yeah. this propaganda drive has really, really endangered, you know, mental health in general and people's cognitive abilities in particular. Because, you know, people with college degrees are saying the most scientifically illiterate things because they get all their information from the press, you know, which gets all its information from, you know, liars like Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates who have a vested interest in the outcome. And so, anyway. And what about, I mean, one of the, one of the really big turnarounds was, um, you know, I don't know how many months you have to go back to when, you know, people were saying, oh, you know what, I, it looks like the, it looks like um, the virus was made in a lab. And those people were complete. I mean, you're, you're, you're a nut job. There's absolutely no, you know, you are not welcome in polite society. Get out of here with that, you know, that um, science fiction, that, uh, you know, anti-Chinese, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And now people are coming around and saying like, oh yeah, it actually, it might actually have been made in a lab. Well, uh, and, 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 and it's so, you know, and it's so, it's so difficult. Uh, it's, it's difficult for a lay person like, like myself, where uh, I have, I'm a, I'm a new dad. I have a, I have a family. I have loved ones. And right. I also love my friends and my community. And I, and I, I loved my city at one point, but I'm no longer in. And I just want to know what's the truth. So I could live a, the healthiest life I can live and take care of the people I love yeah. and people are just yeah. pulling, uh, pulling us apart. You know, I hear you. I, you know, I totally hear you. It's a real serious problem to have a media system as utterly corrupt as we have, just as we have a voting system, it's as utterly corrupt as ours. And we have a medical establishment that is really deeply corrupted by big pharma money and by Gates in particular, who, pretty much owns the World Health Organization. I don't know if people know this. I, I, I'm, I am an absolutely um, fanatical believer in free speech and the First Amendment. And, I, and as such, I don't think anything is off the table. You know, and everything should be open for discussion. Uh, you know, everything, because you don't just take things on faith, right? You examine them yourself. So, you know, news from underground, it's just me but I try to provide people with as much information as possible on, on very important issues. If I send something out that's faulty or wrong, people will let me know. I'll send out a correction immediately. I'll send out arguments against that. That's, that's how truth emerges. That's how the scientific process works through the clash of opinions and different sets of data, you know, different kinds of studies and experiments, experiences. Um, so, you know, if, if we had a properly functioning democracy, this COVID crisis from the beginning would have been handled uh, 
so efficiently and democratically that it, 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 it wouldn't have become anything like the disaster it became. Because from the beginning, every claim, every directive, every policy would be subjected to open public procedures where experts on several sides of the issue would testify and answer questions you know, put to them by legislators. That never happened, never happened. From the beginning, it's been top down. It's like Cuomo you know, issues this directive. All these businesses closed. There was never any need for that. All these people, you know, skulking around the streets with masks on, little children wearing masks, you know, that just makes me want to cry. That's completely unnecessary because children have strong natural immunity to COVID-19. They don't get it and they don't transmit it. But if you put a mask on them all day long, you are endangering their health. You are depriving them of oxygen, okay? You're also stunting them socially because you learn how to, you know, relate to others through facial expressions. You know, it's traumatizing for them to see all these eyes masked up, you know, from lower lids to, to neck. It's grotesque. It's like sadistic. It's just wrong, you know? Uh, the city that I love and that you left and loved, not the same city anymore, you know? I don't really recognize it. I don't recognize these people as New Yorkers, you know? It, it, it's kind of an authoritarian plague that's taken over the city. And, um, you know, I, for one, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to take it. Uh, and we have to speak up uh, and we have to study these vaccines uh, because they are extremely dangerous and they're not even vaccines at all. I mean, they work in a different way. But we've been so, you know, barraged with disinformation, you know, uh, by our favorite media usually that we, we really don't know what's up. And people have made decisions based either on panic or on a desperate desire to be able to go back to the world we used to know. You know, they want to be able to fly somewhere and see a loved one. So I'll get the shot, you know. It's not a good idea. If you've had one, I don't think you should get the second one. If you've had two, absolutely do not get a third one. You know, all the stuff about boosters is just based on a big lie, you know. And I'm not, you know, I'm a media studies professor. I'm not a virologist, but I am one who has corresponded with dissident virologists, who has shared interviews with a lot of people all over the world. Uh, I will recommend a couple of people to you and your audience. This guy, Dr. Mike Yeadon, Y-E-A-D-O-N. This guy was for years a vice president at Pfizer. He was Pfizer's chief science officer. He has his own company. He is a believer in vaccines, okay? You have got to watch some interviews with this guy. He's been banned from social media. You know, the media blacks him out, but you can get hold of interviews with him. He has a lot of truth to tell about how dangerous these vaccines are. Uh, he believes, he's decided, he can come to no conclusion other than the thought that this is a deliberate depopulation effort, okay? He's very convincing. Another guy, you should check out is a very famous microbiologist named Sukarit Bhakti. That's S-U-C-H-A-R-I-T. Last name B as in boy, H-A-K-D-I. There's some terrific interviews with him. Uh, you know, they, and they're not the only ones, but they're the most articulate ones. And nobody can call them an anti-vaxxer or any of that stuff. That's not what this is about. You know, they believe in certain vaccinations. 
There are also some, you know, pretty pro-vax guys who have made millions off vaccines who are very uneasy about these inoculations because they were rushed through. The Moderna vaccine was not even animal tested at all. Uh, they were hustled to market in months. It usually takes years to test these things and they don't work the way any previous vaccine has worked, okay? Vaccines work by you know, injecting you with a live or dead or attenuated version of a virus, you know, so that your system develops antibodies against it, and then you're immune. That's the first vaccine was for smallpox. And this is Edward Jenner, okay? And, and, and the word vaccine comes from the Latin word for cow, you know, because he used a kind of cowpox to inoculate people against that disease, okay? That's the way all vaccines have worked, you know, for all the other illnesses, measles, you know, et cetera. Some of those vaccines are very problematic too for other reasons, but these are not, these don't work that way, okay? They don't, they've never managed to isolate this virus, the coronavirus, for weird, I don't know why, it's very strange, but nobody has a completely isolated version. So they haven't been able to come up with a weak or live or attenuated version of that, can't do it. So they've kind of put together an artificial version of it, you know, using some of the proteins from that virus. So it's like an artificial spike protein that they inject into your system in the hopes that it will stimulate an, an autoimmune response, not to prevent you from getting the infection. You know, people who've gotten the, the, this vaccine Oh, they think I won't catch it. No, people who get the vaccine often catch it. It happens all the time because it does not protect against infection or transmission. All it is supposed to do is to ensure that when you get it, your symptoms will not be severe. That's the justification. But if you study the vaccine adverse event reporting system, that's V-A-E-R-S, which is the database of reports by doctors that they've been adverse events after shots, okay? If you did, it's very hard to use. It's very user unfriendly. But if you can figure out how to dig down into the data, you discover that there have been thousands of deaths after these vaccinations in this country alone and uh, many, many more injuries. A lot of people getting weirdly sick after these shots. And only about 1% of those events end up being reported to the VAERS system. So the actual number of people who've, who've suffered from this campaign is far greater than we know. And you have to go outside the media to get this truth, see? And then when I say things like this, I'll be called you know, a conspiracy theorist, I'll be putting lives at risk and so on. No, I believe I'm saving lives. Okay. Well, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, you're scaring the shit out of me because, because I, I, I got, I got the, the Pfizer one. Um, and, uh, fortunately, at least at, the, at this point, the adverse effects, I had uh, kind of a, a cold, you know, like sort of after it, thankfully nothing, nothing more serious, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's getting close to my bedtime and I, I, I feel like my eyes are going to be open staring up at the ceiling. Did you just have the one shot? Another two. I, I had the two. The and you, you didn't have any bad reaction after either one. For, fortunately not. Yeah, okay. fortunately. Can I, can I give you some medical advice? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because well, I, I don't want you to go to bed all scared. All right. 
there, there's a substance called Suramin, S-U-R-A-M-I-N, that is actually an antidote uh, to this, um, certainly to COVID and, and very likely to the spike protein problem. And the way that you can get that is just to drink pine needle tea, okay? Pine needle tea. Pine needle tea. Okay. Yeah, drink a strong cup of that every day and you should be okay. Did your whole family get the shots? Uh, just, uh, just me and my wife. Yeah. yeah the, the kids don't need it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Please don't. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He's, he's, um, he's, he's only one. Yeah. No, but no, 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 no. But they're, they're trying to, to vaccinate children too. And it's, it's just, it's like something out of Nazi Germany. I'm telling you, um, do, do join my website, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and I, I, I'm, my purpose is not to scare or depress anybody. My purpose is to inform people, you know, that's what, that's why we have a first amendment. That's why the, the, you know, the first generation of framers and, and the Congress in 1792 passed the Post Office Act. The whole purpose of that act, the whole purpose of building, you know, creating the finest network of postal roads in the world, it was all about getting people news. It was not about writing letters or sending junk mail. It was all about news. It was all about making it possible for newspapers in every state to be circulated to the people in other states. That's what it was all about. And it was based on a clash of viewpoints and opinions because they believed that, a, that an informed citizenry would be able to resist government tyranny. That was their belief. Now we have a media system that's inseparable from the government, right? It's like five multinational corporations own it all. They're very, very close to the uh, FCC and all the other agencies. It's a kind of behemoth that is not interested in our welfare. We have to look out for ourselves. We have to get the truth for ourselves. One way or another, Lou, I will end up doing an online propaganda course for the public, okay? And, and I'll let people know through my list because there is a real appetite for this. Sure. Uh, people need to know how to get some truth and that, that's their God-given right to, to know what's going on. And as citizens of a democracy, that's necessary. So, um, you know, I, I understand that I, you know, I, I can freak you out if you've not <laughs> talked to me before, but it's, it's good to know what's going on. Uh, yeah. It's good to get some truth. It's good to be armed with some truth and not to be intimidated when people call you names for doing it. Um, accusing you of being nuts for not believing the official narrative. There's no reason to believe the official narrative. There's none. Yeah. And, and Mark, I, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And, you know, as a, as an alum of, of NYU, um, I, I'm really upset by what you're going through as a, as a professor, because, you know, uh, talking to you, um, you're one of those professors that I wish I had had. Um, back when when I was there, because a few of the things that like you, you you get making my stomach feel weird, but that's I think that's important, especially for for young people um, who, God, you're going to college because you need to have your beliefs tested. You need to be exposed yeah. to to stuff. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna share um, all of the links um, that you have to your change.org, to your uh, GoFundMe, to your um, uh, news from underground. Okay. And um, I hope more people uh, check out your stuff. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, I think, I think whether it's at NYU or on your own, your own platform, um, I, I, I'm happy that uh, I, I know that you're going to be teaching. So well, thanks a million, Lou. And thanks for having me on. And let's keep in touch. You know, I mean, right I mean if you're on my list, you'll, you'll be kept apprised. Let me say one last thing. I was just attacked 
pretty viciously by uh, as a hit piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is kind of like the New York Times of the academic. I can only imagine, yeah. And uh, I knew this was going to be a hit piece. I, I agreed to be interviewed because the guy was going to write the piece anyway. And uh, it was a condition of the interview that he'd give me the um, videos of our conversations and they're now up on my website. So people can read this attack on me and then watch our conversations. And tomorrow I'll be putting up our email exchanges from the beginning. So this is actually gonna be a very interesting demonstration of how a hit piece is put together, you know, by cherry picking little things. And um, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't believe in taking this stuff lying down. Uh, when you're attacked, you fight back uh, and you don't want them to shut you up. Thank you so much for watching and or listening to my podcast. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. And another way to support me is by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blbckbrew.com. Use promo code Lou for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75. All right. Bye.